Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Turn up your radio and listen very carefully during the next 15 minutes. I have a most important message from God's Holy Word. My subject is the science of creation. We're comparing the precepts of the world system of evolutionary uniformitarianism with the revelation of God's word on biblical creationism and catastrophism. In so doing, we're finding out that the evidence of science actually supports creationism much better than it does evolutionary uniformitarianism. For the past several days, I've been discussing the theories of the pseudoscience known as historical geology. I'd like to continue this discussion today, but first let me read Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. The secular system of evolutionary-based historical geology is afflicted with some colossal difficulties. Some of these difficulties make almost inconceivable demands on human reason, and to accept some of the solutions to these difficulties offered by the historical geologists, a person must have a degree of faith in this system greater than that which the Lord said was necessary to move mountains. Let's take just a brief look at a couple of these problems. Anyone who has ever investigated the subject is aware that there are many places on the surface of the earth where rock strata classified as very young, geologically speaking that is, overlie strata classified as much older. None of the rock formations that are supposed to represent the millions or billions of years of intervening time are present between these two formations. Yet the much younger rock is lying on top of the much older rock in what to all outside appearances is perfect conformity. By perfect conformity, we mean that the junction between the two formations is smooth and even, just as if the younger formation had been directly deposited upon the older. There are no signs whatsoever of any apparent erosion or anything else to give a clue that what the geologists asserts is true, that millions or billions of years have elapsed between the deposition of the two separate formations. To all practical appearances, the two formations were deposited in uninterrupted sequence. Now, geologists know that under present natural law, as soon as masses of rock are lifted up above the surface of the water, they are immediately exposed to the forces of erosion. We're aware that presently exposed continents are heavily scarred with canyons and hollows that are the result of these forces of erosion. The geologists explain the missing rock formations, that is, the formations that the geologic column says should lie between the two formations that have been found, by saying there was a long period between the two depositions in which forces of erosion wore away all of these so-called missing strata. Now, we would reasonably expect that rocks exposed to erosion for many millions of years would show some of the same effects that we see on the surface of the continents today. We would expect to find the contours of valleys, basins, and hills at the top of the much older formation. The strange thing is that in most of the places where very young formations overlie much older formations, such evidence is totally lacking. The marks of any kind of disturbance by erosion is totally lacking at the junction of the two formations. 
it certainly appears that one formation was directly deposited on the other without any uplift and without any intervening time period. Historical geologists have a very appropriate name for this very common phenomena of nature. They call such rock formations deceptive conformities. You see, in these rather plentiful geologic examples, nature is trying to deceive the hard-working geologist into believing that the two formations were laid down in direct sequence when actually many millions of years passed between the two depositions. But the historical geologist is too smart to be deceived by fickle nature. He has his geologic column, the inspired record of past geologic history as revealed through Sir Charles Lyell. Because he has this record, he can detect nature's prank. Now, it appears that any person approaching this problem without previous geologic bias would recognize in the evidence simply a natural phenomenon. The deceptive conformity should present no serious difficulty at all. The idea of a sea of ages rolling off one by one as natural forces slowly work to shape this world into its present form as depicted by the geologic column is simply not correct. The evidence of the commonly occurring deceptive conformity simply does not support such a concept of Earth's history. Rather, the evidence supports the biblical concept of a great universal flood in the days of Noah. There's another problem that faces the historical geologist that perhaps taxes his faith in his system even more than the one just considered. This second problem is created by those rock formations that simply refuse to fit into the neatly ordered life succession timetable that geologists call the geologic column. The problem in view is the existence of the so-called horizontal thrust faults. Now, as long as the rock formations are not rebellious and place themselves in at least the correct order as specified by the geologic column, that is, the older rocks are at the bottom and the younger rocks are at the top, then all is relatively well. But to the frustration of the evolutionary geologist, all too often this is not the case. In a great many of the formations of our Earth's crust, the so-called younger rocks are at the bottom. Rocks that are supposedly hundreds of millions of years older are lying on top of these younger strata. The entire collection of rock strata is laid down in what, to all appearances, was the natural way. That is, they're lying conformably one upon the other. There are no visual evidences of violent disturbances. This, to the evolutionary geologist, baffling situation sometimes exists over thousands of square miles. Now the geologists have given a name to these phenomena. They are called horizontal thrust faults. Historical geologists have generated a theory to account for the frequent occurrence of such horizontal thrust faults. According to this theory, thousands of square miles of solid rock, often including parts of mountain ranges, were bodily lifted by what are referred to as the forces of nature, and they were pushed over the top of the so-called younger rocks. It's this simple mechanism that brought about the reverse order. Now remember, the basic presupposition of the entire field of historical geology is the present is the key to the past. So we have to ask, does this hypothesis that's proposed to explain the existence of the horizontal thrust faults fit into this presupposition? First, we should note that large-scale horizontal thrust faults are found all over the world. There are massive examples all over the United States and Canada, as well as throughout the rest of the world. 
One very well documented and citable example is found in the Rocky Mountain region of northern Montana and southern Alberta. In round numbers, the district involved is about 500 miles long, north and south, and about 40 miles wide, east and west. It includes Glacier National Park, Banff Park, and the Lake Louise region. Now, this is a region of about 20,000 square miles, and the rock formation that was involved in the horizontal thrust fault is many hundreds of feet thick. In general, these mountains are formed of rather uniform limestone strata that has been classified by geologists as Precambrian in the south and Carboniferous in the north. The strata lying underneath all of this, however, is classified as Cretaceous, a much younger formation, and it's made up of soft shale. The overlying hard Precambrian limestone is supposed to be a billion years older than the underlying Cretaceous soft shale. Now here we have a fantastic spectacle. The forces of nature took a 20,000 square mile area of hard, thick rock that had been lying peacefully in its deposited position for a billion years, lifted it upward for thousands of feet, and pushed it over the top of the much younger Cretaceous soft shale. All this happened without visible damage to either formation. This is the pro-offered scientific solution to the problem. Again, let's try to visualize this fantastic spectacle. A 20,000 square mile area of hard rock several hundreds of feet deep was lifted up for many hundreds of feet into the air after the rock formation had been lying peacefully in its deposited position for approximately one billion years. Then it was pushed over the top of the billion-year-younger soft shale. All this happened apparently without any violent reactions. The maneuver was executed so precisely that the so-called older rock now lies on top of the younger. It's now resting there, looking to all the world as though it had been deposited in that position originally. Apparently the very soft Cretaceous shale formation underneath did not suffer at all by the sliding of the hard limestone over it. Now remember, the example described is not an isolated one. Many other similar situations on every continent of our globe can be named and documented. To move a mountain may require a faith only the size of a mustard seed, according to the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. But to believe that horizontal thrust faults actually occurred would require a faith many times as great. Yet it is the men who propose and propound this theory that sit in judgment over the creation and flood accounts recorded in the book of Genesis. These men have ruled out both the creation and the Noachian flood accounts as unscientific and impossible. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us by radio for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing our study of the science of creation. The truly scientific view of origins is biblical creationism and catastrophism. The religious view is that of evolutionary uniformitarianism because that's exactly what evolution is, the religion of atheism. It's now time for us to take a close look at the basic precepts for the theory of evolution. Let me open today's message by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 
I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth the beasts, even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? The little book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is one of the most remarkable books in the Bible, penned by King Solomon about 900 years before our Lord Jesus Christ was born. This little book includes a detailed summary of every false teaching and false philosophy that can be generated by the Satan-guided fallen mind of natural man. King Solomon, the chosen vessel through whom the Holy Spirit of God gave us this little book, had in his lifetime experimental knowledge of all of these false pursuits and false philosophies. He had gone astray from God in every conceivable way, and he was endowed with all earthly means for following the fallacies of man. But in his older years, he labeled all of man's pursuits of sinful pleasures as vanity and vexation of spirit. It's always interesting to turn to the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes and read verses 18 through 22 because here King Solomon describes to us man's great fallacy of our day, the theory of evolution. This false philosophy, described by the inspired King Solomon so many years ago, is the philosophy that has turned so many against God in this present century. Today, almost everything we come in contact with has, in some way, been affected by man's theory of evolution. Beloved, we who present ourselves as fundamental evangelical Christians cannot ignore the theory of evolution. This is a theory, a philosophy, that must be reckoned with. It is not going to go away. Evolution is an all-embracing worldview. It's a philosophy, a faith, a religion of tremendous importance. Its influence each day penetrates more and more deeply into modern life. If you think that this is an exaggeration, Let's just consider a quotation from a lecture by Dr. René DeBose, a leading contemporary evolutionist. Most enlightened persons now accept as a fact that everything in the cosmos, from heavenly bodies to human beings, has developed and continues to develop through evolutionary processes. The great religions of the West have come to accept a historical view of creation. Evolutionary concepts are applied also to social institutions and to the arts. Indeed, most political parties, as well as schools of theology, sociology, history, or arts, teach these concepts and make them the basis of their doctrine. Thus, theoretical biology now pervades all of Western culture indirectly through the concept of progressive historical change." Unquote. From this quotation by a leading spokesman of the evolutionists, we should all realize that evolution is not merely a biological theory. Evolution is a full-blown cosmology. The entire structure of modern secular education, from kindergarten through postgraduate college, both in content and in methodology, is built around a framework of evolutionary thought. John Dewey, the father of progressive education, was a follower of Darwin, 
and he saw to this as he brought about his educational revolution. Now, in the light of all of this, one may reason there must be some rather substantial evidence backing the theory of evolution. If evolution has become such a molding influence on our society, there must be a great deal of evidence that points to the truth of the theory. Friend, except for the fossils and the rocks of the earth, which man has chosen to believe tell a story of progressive ev evolution, there is no evidence for it at all. In fact, the assumed processes of evolution violate one of our most basic laws of experimental science. We could say, along with the Apostle Peter, willingly are they ignorant. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. In this statement, the inspired Apostle Paul declares a truth that is prominent throughout all Scripture. God did not populate our planet with plant and animal life of the various varieties that we see today by any process of evolution. Rather, each kind is a distinct and separate creation, and each kind can trace its origin to the six days of creation. Man came into existence by special creation, created in the image of God to have dominion over all the earth. But man sinned by disobeying God, and he fell from his high estate. And now fallen sinful man, in spite of God's revelation, chooses to believe that he came into existence by evolving from the lower animals. The theory of evolution permits man to forget God. It does even more than that. It makes man his own God. Beloved, a spiritual, Bible-believing, and honoring Christian simply cannot avoid the issue of evolution. This theory, this system of belief, permeates every aspect of secular life, and it influences many areas of religious life also. There is really little wonder that many professing Christians, as well as the assemblies with which they are associated, have capitulated to evolutionary concepts. They have tried to adapt and to harmonize their religious views to modern evolutionary science and social philosophy. It will not and it does not work. Evolution and Christianity are based on two opposite and mutually exclusive precepts. They cannot both be simultaneously true. Many who are listening today probably now expect me to discuss the many refutations to the theory of evolution that are found in nature. However, this is not my present intent. There are countless examples in nature that yield positive evidences as to the absurdities of biological evolution. Whole books have been written on this subject, and many of these are readily available from bookstores that handle such material. To state the case in a nutshell, it boils down to the fact that evolutionists have only one major line of evidence for their theory. That line of evidence is the record of the fossils in the rocks of the earth. If you're aware of the facts presented in some of my recent broadcasts, then you know how absurd it is to base a theory of evolution on the findings of historical geology. Historical geology itself is founded on an acceptance of the theory of biological evolution. Even evolutionists now have to admit that the evidences for evolution once claimed in the areas of embryology, vestigial organs, and so forth have been proven invalid. Mendel's laws of heredity, which were formulated and experimentally proven after the time of Darwin, have been devastating to the theory of evolution. But what we will do as we continue our discussion is to probe deeper than just the surface evidence against evolution. 
we'll consider the theory of evolution in the light of the teachings of the Bible and in the light of the most basic laws of true science. We will then see if evolution makes sense either in light of the biblical teachings of both the Old and New Testaments or in the light of modern 20th century science. Suppose that we first consider the position of a born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian. I think that it should be clear to anyone that this person has obvious and clear-cut reasons for rejecting evolution. He believes the Bible to be the inerrant, verbally inspired Word of God, just as it claims to be. The born-again Christian believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing he has life through his name. Since he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then he believes all the things that Jesus said. And he knows that the four Gospels contain many passages in which Jesus Christ our Lord authenticated all of the Old Testament as the verbally inspired written word of God. The Lord spoke specifically of all five books of Moses, which include Genesis, when in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18 he said, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The Genesis creation account is sober history recorded almost as a logbook record. Each day's work is described successively. The phrase, after its kind, is used no less than ten times in the creative narrative, and each time it's used to describe the inherent reproduction processes that God created within the, uh, that specific order of life. This phrase plainly indicates that variations within the basic kinds were always to be within very clearly drawn limits. This limitation absolutely and certainly precludes any real evolution. All experimental evidence today points to the fact that these Genesis-imposed limits do exist and that they cannot be crossed. Biologists have been working with fruit flies, irradiated and otherwise, for over 30 years. They've produced almost every variety of fruit fly imaginable, but they have never yet produced a single bumblebee or any other kind of insect. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Let me once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I'm glad that you've joined us today for another radio Bible study. Our continuing study is the science of creation. Today I'd like to contrast the basic tenets of orthodox biblical Christianity with those of the theory of evolution. We can then see that these two systems stand in direct opposition one to another and that they are mutually exclusive. Let me open today's message by reading Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? With these words the Lord Jesus Christ quoted from the Genesis creation account, and thus placed his seal of approval on its historical authenticity. The passage that our Lord quoted is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. With this in mind, let's now contrast the cardinal doctrines of Orthodox Christianity with the doctrinal tenets of the theory of evolution. Orthodox biblical Christianity definitely involves all of the following points. First, 
a primeval creation of the universe out of no previously existing materials. Second, the original creation was perfect and complete. Third, the first man, Adam, who was created to have dominion over the earth, disobeyed God and therefore fell from his created estate. Fourth, Adam's fall resulted in a worldwide curse of God. Fifth, the curse brought about by Adam's sin required intervention by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ to provide a remedy, a reversal of the age-long tragedy of decay, deterioration, and death. Sixth, because of the intervention and work of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the blessed provision of redemption and salvation is available to all of Adam's descendants as a free gift through faith, completely apart from all works of human effort. Finally, the creation itself is to be redeemed from the curse in that future day following the second coming of Jesus Christ in power and glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, on the other hand, and in direct contrast to this, the religion of evolution teaches, first, a flat denial of any purposeful creation. Our universe came into existence and shaped itself into its present configuration by blind laws of nature, according to the evolutionists. Since there is a denial of any purposeful creation, there is also necessarily a denial of any fall into sin. Therefore, evolution denies that there's any need for redemption. The evolutionary philosophy of the secular world definitely involves all of the following points. First, it teaches the development of all life by a purposeless process of chance out of prior existing materials. The theory does not even try to explain how the prior materials came into existence, even though the two laws of energy exchange prove that material cannot be eternal. Second, the theory holds that all development was by chance and random variation. Third, the direction of development was also by chance and random variation. Fourth, the direction of development was determined by a struggle for existence and natural selection. Evolutionists say that the direction of development follows the principles of survival of the fittest. Fifth, the higher orders of organization in life developed only after hundreds of millions of years of struggle. Sixth, after all these ages of struggle, now creatures are evolved whose brain structure is so highly integrated that they are able to understand and then control the processes of evolution. And seventh, after all these ages of struggle, and then perhaps after a few centuries of controlled effort, which are going on now, life will reach an ultimate state of perfection and the earth will be a great utopia and they lived happily ever after. When you place the tenets of these two systems side by side, as we have just done, it should be clear to any Christian that real evolution, in the form presented by its most militant leaders, is in radical opposition to all the fundamental cardinal doctrines of biblical Christianity. Again, evolution is not a science. It's a religion. It's the religion of atheism. Evolution denies the fall of man, and therefore it denies man's sinful nature. In fact, under evolutionary philosophy, there's no such thing as sin. Man is what he is because of his animal heritage. But the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
We who have experienced the miracle of the new birth through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can sing together, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. We have contrasted the basic tenets of the Christian faith with the basic tenets of the atheistic theory of evolution, and we found that the two systems are opposites. They are mutually exclusive. That is, if one is true, the other cannot possibly be true. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and thus has eternal life through his name, should roundly reject all of the teachings of the evolutionary system. But let's go further than that. We can show that even people of the Jewish and Muslim faiths, people who do not profess to be Christians, but who do profess to believe in the divine authority of the Old Testament, should also realize that they too cannot accept the teachings of the theory of evolution. The Old Testament, without question, teaches the doctrine of special creation. The creation account found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 clearly describes a creation without prior existing materials by the omnipotent God. This account tells us that God molded and formed the newly created earth into a system of perfection in six days. The Genesis creation account is a magnificent piece of literature, and it is not approached in majesty and beauty by anything else written in ancient or in modern times. There is no other ancient account of origins that even approaches the concept presented in the opening chapters of the Bible. Listener, do you realize that with the single exception of the Bible, all ancient theories of the earth's beginning are actually evolutionary in nature? The theory of evolution was not invented by Charles Darwin. Darwin simply brought it up to date in his time. The ancient Greeks had a very well-developed theory of evolution that was an integral part of their pagan religion. However, the theory goes back even further than that. The ancient Babylonians, living before the time of Abraham, had a rather well-developed theory of evolution. Actually, the Sumerians, the race from which the Babylonians sprang, were the authors of the earliest written account of the origin of the earth that we have outside of the Bible, and that account is basically a theory of evolution. All of the ancient accounts of the earth's origin began with prior existing materials. There is never any mention of where these materials came from. The world is then considered as having been shaped and molded into its present form by postulated gods or forces of nature. Let's emphasize this point. It's absolutely clear that the Genesis story of creation could not have been borrowed from pagan sources simply because there are no pagan sources in existence from which it could have been borrowed. It cannot be charged that the Genesis account is merely an accommodation to the mentality of the early Hebrews either. Have you ever paused to consider that creation out of nothing, as described in Genesis, is a great deal more difficult for the human mind to grasp than is evolution? Just look how much more easy it is for, to get someone to accept the broad brush description of the supposed principles of evolution than it is to get them to accept creation out of nothing. The conclusion of the creation period described in Genesis chapter 1 is designated by the strongly emphasized statement that God rested from all his work, that is, energy, that he had created and made. The Holy Spirit's exact words are, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Therefore, 
it is emphatically stated that the processes which operated during the creation period are no longer in operation. This fact is again emphasized in the explanatory statement of the fourth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Old Testament scripture plainly tells us that at the end of six days, God's creative and formative works had all been completed. The world was finished, and God had inspected his finished work and pronounced it very good. The creation period described in Genesis chapter 1 was truly a period of development. It in every way was a period of organization, a period of integration, a period of progress from the simple to the complex. Light had been created to alleviate the darkness. Water had been elevated above the atmosphere. Land areas had been brought up out of the waters. The basic inorganic materials of the earth had been compacted into living plants. The two great light sources for the earth had been created and placed in their proper relative positions. The earth's materials had been organized into animal bodies, and these animals had been given the breath of life. And most of all, first man, Adam, had been built up from the dust of the earth into the most highly organized system in the universe. To that body of clay had been given a living soul and an eternal spirit. Adam had been created in the very image of God himself. All of this creating, integrating, and organizing had been accomplished directly by the Creator himself. The work took place not over billions of years, but rather in six literal days. The Old Testament creation account does not allow any place for any of the tenets or teachings of evolutionary uniformitarianism. My time is gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I'm glad that you've joined our radio family for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing the study that I call the science of creation. We're looking at the technical aspects of biblical creationism, and we're finding that the model erected upon creation precepts is vastly superior from a scientific standpoint to the model of evolutionary uniformitarianism. Today, let me continue the arguments for the precept that I introduced on the last broadcast. That precept was that those who profess to believe in the divine origin of the Old Testament Jews, Muslims, and so forth, are not consistent in their beliefs if they also profess to believe in evolution. Let me again read Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Old Testament scripture tells us plainly that all of God's creating, developing, integrating, and organizing had been accomplished directly by the personal work of the Creator himself. The work took place not over billions of years, but in six literal days. And lest we be prone to believe that the word day was not really intended to mean day, God defined the word when he first used it. The creation days each consisted of an evening and a morning. There was evening, there was morning, one day. 
Now, since God's creation was finished and God rested on that seventh day, nothing that resembles true creation has been going on in the world since that time. If we want to, we are perfectly at liberty to call God's work of the six creation days evolution. But if we do, we must still recognize that such processes have not existed since that time. But the true evolutionist just simply cannot accept this. He insists that the present is the key to the past, that all past history can be explained by present processes that are in operation and that can be studied today. He insists that creation is still going on and that the processes that supposedly led the earth to its present state of evolution are continuing onward and upward. Eventually, under careful control of man, the magnificent end product of evolution, who is now so far advanced that he can understand and control evolution, the world will become a utopia. Evolution is clearly in opposition to the teachings of the Old Testament. The evolutionists claims that man will control the processes of evolution to direct the development of our present world for the benefit of all mankind. But the Old Testament says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Anyone who is a careful observer will have to admit that in this the Old Testament is correct. We've seen that the Genesis account of creation definitely insists that all creative activities ended after the sixth day. But the true evolutionist cannot accept this. He says that creation, if we insist on calling it that, took place by slow evolutionary processes over billions of years. The processes that brought about evolution are still in operation, so therefore creation is still going on. In this one point only, there is a significant difference in the biblical revelation and the theory of evolution. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop with just that one point. The Genesis account shows that sin and disorder entered God's complete and perfect creation. God pronounced a curse on man's dominion. Cursed is the earth for thy sake, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. According to biblical revelation, then, instead of processes of increasing order, development, and integration and organization, the natural processes of the universe became processes of increasing disorder, of decay, and of death. Even man himself, the man who had been created in the very image of God, the man whose body had been organized from the very elements of the earth, was, from that time on, subject to a continuing process of decay. His final destiny was to return to the same elements from which he had come. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Thus the basic law of the universe became not a law of evolution, but a law of deterioration, a law of death. And to all who simply open their eyes and look, this can be seen around us today. The history of our planet is marked by an age-long record of struggle, suffering, decay, and death. It's a state of existence that is associated with the universal reign of sin. It's a state of existence from which only God himself can bring deliverance. Only God himself can bring salvation. The very evidence in front of the eyes of the unbiased observer should be sufficient to convince him that evolution, with its basic tenet that everything is progressing onward and upward, that everything is getting more highly integrated and is experiencing improvement, is utterly and totally false doctrine.
Both the Old and New Testaments of our Holy Bible present statement after statement and fact after fact which totally refute all of the basic tenets of the evolutionary philosophy. The evidence before our eyes completely supports the biblical position. There are people today who claim not to believe in the Old Testament, but they do profess to believe in the New Testament. When these people adopt a name that's supposed to be descriptive of their beliefs, they call themselves progressive revelationists. Usually such people are convinced that the Old Testament is pre-scientific. They say that its religious concepts contain elements of mythology. These people often say that they can accept both their faith in the New Testament and the theory of evolution. Since the New Testament is their sole rule of faith and practice, they claim that they are not burdened with Old Testament superstitions such as that of the creation account. People who think along these lines should also clearly understand that the theory of evolution is repudiated again and again by the New Testament. Claiming to accept both evolution and New Testament Christianity simply demonstrates a lack of familiarity with the New Testament scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ quoted from the creation account in Matthew chapter 19. The writer of Hebrews clearly tells us that all things were made out of nothing by the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The writer of Hebrews also agrees with Moses that all of God's creative activity ceased at the end of the creation week. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3 he writes, Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. My friend, the Old and New Testaments are not contradictory. Taken together they form our Bible, the written word of God. Let's read the details of Adam's creation as they're given in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. This statement should settle the question of evolution, at least as far as man's origin is concerned, for anyone who professes to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is specifically declared that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, not of the flesh of other living creatures. In God's word, every word is important, and every word has its meaning. The dust of the ground can only mean inorganic, non-living material. If evolution was God's way of creating, as the so-called theistic evolutionists of our day contend, that is, if God had actually caused man to spring from the bodies of the lower animals, then this statement would be untrue. God has taken care to specifically inform us in his word that he formed man directly out of the inorganic materials of the earth's surface, and he caused that resulting lump of clay to become a living man by his own divine power. But, of course, the verse quoted is from the creation account in the book of Genesis. Genesis is in the Old Testament. The progressive revelationists of our day continue to insist that the Old Testament is pre-scientific and that its religious concepts contain elements of mythology. Since they say that the New Testament is their sole rule of faith and practice, they, of course, are not burdened with Old Testament superstitions such as the creation account. Such a position is most definitely inconsistent with the clear teachings of the New Testament. All of the writers, the human authors of the New Testament books, plainly believed in the divine inspiration and full authority of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is quoted as a source of authority by all the New Testament writers. 
The Lord Jesus Christ himself often quoted from the Old Testament and presented it as the written word of God. He referred to the exact same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today when in John chapter 10 and verse 35 he said, The scripture cannot be broken. The Lord Jesus Christ also quoted from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, a part of the creation account in his discourse on the marriage relationship that's found in Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul clearly repudiates the whole idea of biological evolution when in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 39 he writes, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. This is a point-blank denial of one of the foremost tenets of biological evolution. Evolution is founded on the belief in a basic equivalence of all kinds of living matter. It should be evident to anyone who takes time to investigate the scriptures that the Old Testament stands in full accord with the Old Testament, rather I should say the New Testament stands in full accord with the Old Testament in its teaching of the doctrine of special creation. The concepts of evolution are roundly condemned in both Testaments. No one who believes in the divine inspiration of either the Old or New Testament can consistently believe in evolution. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I bring you greetings from him who bears the highest name under heaven, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Turn up your radio and join us for another 15 minutes around the Word of God. Our continuing subject is the science of creation. We're looking at the technical implications of both evolutionary uniformitarianism and biblical creationism. And in so doing, we are finding that science supports the model of biblical creationism. Let's continue looking at the ways in which the theory of evolution is refuted both by the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and by the facts of science. But let me first read Psalm 102 verses 24 through 27. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The universal rule of deterioration, death, and decay is one of the major themes of both Old and New Testament theology. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that the creation has been made subject to vanity or futility and that it is under the bondage of decay, groaning and travailing in pain together until now in Romans chapter 8 verses 20 through 22. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The Apostle Peter assures us 
that it is not only the physical universe that's dying, but also that all flesh is like grass which withereth, when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24. Let's emphasize this point. It's completely inconsistent for anyone to claim belief in the New Testament and not in the Old Testament. The human writers of the New Testament clearly believed in the divine inspiration and the full historical accuracy of the Old Testament. There are a great many references made to the narrative of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, and always these references are made in an attitude of total trust in its historical accuracy. One may be listening today who believes himself to be a true scientist and perhaps says that he is an agnostic or an atheist. That is, he is one who does not profess to believe in the Bible, either in whole or in part. Now let's ask the question, doesn't one of this conviction have a logical reason for believing in the theory of evolution? The answer is absolutely no. If in reality this one is a true scientist, there is probably less reason for him to believe in evolution than any other man alive. First, the true scientist, better than anyone else, should recognize that all of the major precepts of the theory of evolution are beyond the reach of the scientific method. The scientific method always involves the concept of experimental repeatability. The theory of evolution concerns itself with origins, and origins involve events that are not repeatable and they are not measurable. Scientists can only deal with the processes of the present world. It's totally impossible to extrapolate present processes sufficiently far into the past to determine the real facts of origins. A true scientist should understand the basic laws of physics, and these laws are not in any sense processes of origins or processes of development. The two most basic laws of physics are processes of conservation and decay. This is extremely important, and it should be repeated for emphasis. All present processes of our universe, it makes no difference whether they're physical processes, chemical processes, biological processes, geological processes, or whatever, must operate within the limits of the two most basic laws of physics. These two laws, known as the first and second laws of thermodynamics, are the laws of energy exchange. The first law of thermodynamics is a law of energy conservation. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. The second law of thermodynamics is a law of energy deterioration. In every energy exchange, a portion of the energy is converted into a less useful form. These two laws put impassable boundaries on the processes of the universe. They tell us that the state of the measurable universe is one of quantitative stability and qualitative decay. Absolutely nothing is presently being created or destroyed. That which is presently in existence is constantly decaying toward a condition of thermal equilibrium a state of death. Insofar as can be observed or measured by man, there is no exception or variation from these principles anywhere or at any level in the universe. The two laws of energy exchange are basically, fundamentally, and irrevocably in opposition to the entire philosophy of evolution. The evolutionary philosophy says that present processes are those processes by which the universe came into existence. 
But the first law of thermodynamics says that no energy, and since matter is just energy in a special form, this includes everything, no energy is coming into existence. In addition, evolutionary philosophy holds that there is a universal law that, with increased passage of time, makes things tend to become progressively more organized and more complex. Supposedly, as time went on, elemental particles became atoms, atoms became molecules, the non-living developed life, simple life forms became complex animals, animals became men, and so forth. But the second law of thermodynamics says there's a law operating throughout the universe whereby everything tends to become less organized, randomness increases, and things decay and die. These two precepts are mutually exclusive, and they cannot be simultaneously true. The second law of thermodynamics is true and can be so proved by the experimental method. Therefore, evolution cannot be true and cannot have taken place. Its most basic precept is provably false. There is a universal law of change, but the change is downward, not upward. The theory of evolution is precisely the converse of the second law of thermodynamics. True science does not prove evolution at all, as evolutionists often claim it does. Rather, True science disproves evolution. The Bible not only supports the principles of the two laws of thermodynamics, it calls attention to them in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Genesis. The reasons that people accept evolution are not scientific in nature. There is absolutely no real scientific evidence for it, and there is a great deal in nature that totally refutes it. Then why do people accept this preposterous theory, and why do they defend it so vigorously? Let's point to something that many may have never realized. The real reasons for accepting the theory of evolution are not scientific, but rather religious reasons. There seem to be two, and only two, basic reasons why people believe in evolution. First, evolution stresses those things that are the most understandable and the most precious to natural unregenerated man. The theory stresses the principles of progress and improvement, that is, self-interest and self-improvement. Within the realm of evolutionary thought, man himself is conceived of as the highest system, the end product of the evolutionary process. Now man, that highly evolved creature, is able to control all future evolution by control of his social order and his own biological activities. Evolution makes man his own god. This concept to natural man is an overpowering religious idea. The concept of evolution totally frees natural man from responsibility to a sovereign God and Creator. Without this crutch, men might otherwise see themselves as creatures who must someday give an account of their activities to a God of judgment. Within the philosophy of the theory of evolution, man becomes his own God. He sees himself as responsible only to himself. Or perhaps more specifically, in actual practice, he becomes responsible only to the intelligent elite of the human race. They, in actuality, become his controllers and his spokesmen. Does this begin to shed some light on modern political movements? In short, evolution is a part of the religion of the Antichrist. What I've just described is the thought world of the true leaders in the religion of evolution. It seems to be the only possible explanation of the motivation behind such men. Those leaders are truly representative of the men of whom Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, many people today are evolutionists because of this first reason. 
They simply do not like to retain God in their knowledge. If God is to be rejected, then the universe must be explained in some other way. Evolution is the answer that they've chosen. Most of the average people, though, who believe in evolution are really not thoroughly committed to it in this way. The main reason that many people of the world today believe in evolution is because most people believe in evolution. People are conformists. Pressure has developed through the efforts of the group. People have come to believe that in order to be scientific, they must accept evolution as a fact. Many people who profess to believe in evolution really don't know very much about the theory, and they know even less about its true conflict with Christianity. A person cannot be truly Christian or truly scientific and still believe in evolution. How long wait you between, between two opinions? If Baal be God, follow him. But if Jehovah be God, follow him. My time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Let me greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Turn up your radio and give me your undivided attention for the next 15 minutes. I have a most important message from the Word of God. We're continuing with our study of the science of creation. In the things covered so far, we've already found that biblical creationism provides a much better scientific model for understanding the origin of the universe and the subsequent history of our world than does evolutionary uniformitarianism. Let me open today's message by reading Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We previously considered the question, what is the age of the earth? We then found that there is a great deal of evidence in the field of science that points conclusively to the fact that our earth is not more than about 10,000 years of age. This, of course, checks very closely with the apparent teachings of the Holy Scriptures. The theory that the earth is very old, that is, that the earth's age is measured in billions of years, comes from the assumption of what is often referred to as the doctrine of uniformity. Recall that this is the doctrine that states that present natural processes operating at essentially the same time rates that we observe today may be extrapolated indefinitely into the past and that these processes can account for all the development and past history of our earth. The doctrine of uniformity is usually stated in the catchy clause, the present is the key to the past. But this doctrine can also be stated in the words that Peter used to describe a false philosophy that he predicted would be rampant in the last days. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 we read, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The only tangible evidence for an old earth is that of the well-known geologic column. Those who take the trouble to investigate the situation thoroughly soon find out that the geologic column is nothing more than a purely artificial creation of man actually bearing little resemblance to the true structure of the earth's sedimentary rock strata. In summary, the only evidence for an old earth is really a purely artificial creation of man himself. Science, true science that is, does not offer evidence that the world has great age. We can't emphasize this fact too strongly. The fossils in the rocks of the earth are much better explained by the universal flood at the time of Noah that's described in the Bible. 
true science, rather than offering evidence that our planet is very old, actually provides the proof that it cannot be more than 10,000 years old. So there is really no reason that anyone should feel a need to try to harmonize older theories with the teachings of the Bible. However, there is a theory that has received widespread acceptance among evangelical Christian people that does purport to harmonize the biblical teachings of the history of our earth with the supposed geologic findings of so-called science. This theory is known as the ruin and reconstruction theory or more popularly as the gap theory. Since so many sincere Christians have accepted and taught this theory, we should take some time to discuss it. Many of the great Bible teachers of the early part of this century accepted and taught the gap theory. Among some of the well-known names that could be placed on the list of gap theory advocates are C.I. Schofield, Lewis Talbot, H.A. Ironside, Arno C. Gabeline, and many others. These men were driven to their position, not at all because of strong scriptural support for the theory, because such does not exist, but rather because that in so many qualified and reputable scientists strongly asserted that the earth's great age was a proven fact. Not being technically qualified to refute these scientists on their own ground, these great godly Bible teachers simply accepted the gap theory as their only available way of maintaining the integrity of the scriptures. And in accepting it, they apparently did not look too closely at the far-reaching theological implications that came as a result of acceptance of the theory and its teachings. The theory, stated briefly, is that the greater part of the geologic ages may be placed between the first and second verses of Genesis chapter 1. The gap theory suggests that the first clause of verse 2 should be translated, and the earth became without form and void. This moves verse 1 back into the immeasurable past, and in so doing provides a place for the geologic ages. Advocates of this theory say that in doing this, they have neatly harmonized the teachings of the Bible with the teachings of historical geology, and there is no need for one to oppose the other. On the surface, the theory sounds plausible, but when we go below the surface, we find that there are some very weighty objections, primarily from the theological, but also from the geological viewpoint. In the end result, the theory really does not harmonize anything. The Bible must be accepted at its face value teaching or not at all. Anyone who feels it necessary to harmonize the majestic revelation of God's written word with the speculations and guesses of historical geology should spend a few moments meditating on the searching questions directed by the God of creation to the mere creature Job as they're recorded in Job chapter 38 verses 4 through 11. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors, when it brake forth, as if it had issued out of the womb, when I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shalt thy proud waves be stayed. How could man's puny reasonings ever become significant to one who has had a personal encounter with the God of the universe? But in spite of this, proponents of the gap theory say that back in the limitless past, God created a perfect earth. 
Then, they say, the earth became waste and void because of some great catastrophe. The six days that followed are, therefore, a ruined earth's reconstruction rather than days of creation. To find scriptural support for the postulated catastrophe, they go to Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19, and Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. These passages tell of Satan's fall. Those who advocate the theory say that his fall is associated with the ruin of that early earth. They claim to find implications of this in the referenced passages. Now, it must be admitted that on the surface this theory does sound plausible. It can be understood why the gap theory was grasped as a straw to a drowning man by Bible teachers and others alike when they had been browbeaten into believing that the geologic ages were factual history. But when we go below the surface, we find that there are some very weighty objections, both from the theological and the geological viewpoints. In the end, the theory really does not harmonize anything. However, it does do violence to certain cardinal doctrines of the Bible. The first objection on the theological side is that the gap theory is explicitly contradicted by the explanatory clause of the fourth commandment that's found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Proponents of the gap theory have made a great deal over the difference of the Hebrew words for created of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and for made of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. It's held that create means to call into existence out of nothing and make means to form out of prior existing materials. That there is such a general distinction in the words cannot be denied. However, scriptural usage indicates that this distinction does not always hold because the Hebrew word for create is used in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 21 when it speaks of bringing into being of great whales, and again in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 where man was brought into existence out of the dust of the ground. The Hebrew word for make is used in reference to the forming of man in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and the word for create is used for the same act in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It is difficult to deny that Moses intended Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11 to be a summary of the account of creation that he had penned in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. The obvious implication of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11 is that the author intended his reader to understand that the creation of initial material as well as formation of finished products was in view. This in itself is sufficient to prove the incorrectness of the gap theory. Again, let's place emphasis on the statement made in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. If God made the heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is in six days, as Moses said he did, then this includes all material things of the universe. This includes all raw material as well as all living organisms. Therefore, it includes the raw material on which the fossils that are now preserved in the stratified rocks of the earth are made. Now, don't misunderstand this statement. I'm not saying that God created the earth's fossils in their present condition during the six creation days. We're simply declaring that scripture clearly states that the material of which the fossils are made was created during the six days. So if the material of which the fossils were made was created during the initial six days, then the fossils must necessarily have been formed later. 
However, the assumption that the geologic ages actually occurred is based entirely on the existence of rock strata containing fossils. If the rock strata and fossils were formed after the six days began or ended, then the geologic time which geologists say that they represent could not have occurred before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. This fact alone destroys the gap theory. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when I can greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I appreciate your joining me by radio for another message from God's Holy Word. Our continuing subject for today is the science of creation. We've shown that the time scales of Earth's history, as given by biblical revelation and as taught by secular historical geology, do not have to be harmonized because the two models are based upon two different sets of incompatible and mutually exclusive prior assumptions. The extremely great age of our Earth, as postulated by historical geology, is not supported by true science. On the last broadcast, I was considering the gap theory, a theory that purports to harmonize the secular old Earth teachings with the teachings of the Bible. Let's continue with that discussion today after I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's further emphasize a point that I made at the close of the last broadcast. We have in the gap theory what is purported to be a plausible harmonization between the teachings of secular historical geology and the teachings of the Bible. Historical geologists have found stratified rock in the earth, and this stratified rock contains the preserved remains of the plants and animals called fossils. To explain the existence of such a record in the earth's crust, the geologists have postulated several billions of years of previous earth's history during which time these stratified rock formations were slowly laid down by the same processes of erosion and redeposition that we see operating today. The Bible, on the other hand, states that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, in its elementary state, formless and empty. Then the Bible tells of six days' work of God in which he changed that formless and empty earth into a planet shaped so as to separate waters and lands, and then filled with teeming life. In order to achieve harmony between the biblical creation account and the speculations of the historical geologists, the gap theory advocates say that the great bulk of the geologic ages occurred between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, before the six creation days. But Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11 states that all raw material of which everything in the universe was formed was made during the six days. The fossils could not possibly represent a record of time before the six days if the material of which the fossils are formed was made during the six days. Therefore, in light of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, the gap theory really cannot harmonize anything. The Bible plainly teaches that sin and death entered the world after and as a result of Adam's sin. 
This great truth, as stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, which I just read, is also found in many other passages of Scripture. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 we read, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Also in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. These scripture passages declaring as they do that death entered the world as a result of Adam's sin and that death was not a part of the original creation firmly contradict the idea that millions of creatures, including a great many man-like creatures, died before the six days of creation. Fossil man is found among the strata that supposedly tell us of the geologic ages. Adam was not created until the sixth day, and if man had lived and died prior to this time, then the only conclusion that one can reach is that the Bible is wrong when it claims that Adam's sin introduced death into the previously perfect creation. This problem is the most weighty of all the objections to the gap theory. The Bible teachers, or rather the Bible declares over and over again that there was no death in the earth until after the time of Adam's sin. The many millions of fossils entombed in the sedimentary rocks of the earth's crust is the very phenomenon that the historical geologists are trying to explain when they hypothesize the 4.5 billion years of geologic history for the earth. The fossil record, by its very nature, is a record of death. These millions of fossils lived and died, and on death they were entombed. The gap theory, which many say harmonizes the biblical record with the teachings of historical geology, places the billions of years of early Earth's history of which the geologists say the fossils testify between the first and second verses of Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, this theory says that the world contained a record of several billion years of struggle, of decay, and of death before Adam was ever created. The scriptural record makes it clear that Adam was created on the sixth day of what the gap, the gap theory proponents say was a reconstruction. Therefore, the gap theory introduces a glaring theological contradiction into the biblical revelation. If the gap theory is true, then the only conclusion is that the Bible is simply incorrect when it says that Adam's sin brought death into the creation. If millions of creatures, including man-like creatures, struggled and died before Adam was created, then pre-Adamic man must have lived and died without a savior. God's early creation was a total failure. Therefore, the Bible simply misleads us when it says, For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. No, beloved, the gap theory does not harmonize the teachings of historical geology with the biblical revelation. The gap theory makes the Bible to lie. The Bible, God's word, does not lie. The gap theory cannot stand. Let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The opening verse of the book of Genesis contains the statement that God, who existed from eternity past, began the time history of our universe by creating time. In the beginning, space, God created the heavens and the heavenly body upon which the human drama was to be played out, and the earth. When we consider that scientists now know that our universe is a time, space, matter, that is, energy, continuum, it seems rather striking, in a technical sense, that all three parts of this trinity in unity that is our universe should be mentioned in the first verse of the Bible. But what we should direct our attention to now is the second verse of Genesis chapter 1. All the standard translations of the Bible translate the first clause of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 as, The earth was without form and void. There's good reason for this. The word used here is the regular Hebrew verb of being, which can only be properly translated as was. This same word appears 264 times in the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and in only six of these usages, because of context, does it carry a translation of became. If Moses had been trying to show that the original perfect earth created in verse 1 had progressed to a state of ruin, that is, formlessness and emptiness, there is a much better Hebrew word that he could have used. All the rules of syntax and grammar point to the fact that Moses intended to say exactly what appears in the King James Version. The earth was without form and void. These points have been brought out because those who advocate the gap theory say that Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 should read, and the earth became without form and void. This provides a convenient place to insert the billions of years of earth's early history that historical geologists allege are testified to by the sedimentary rocks of the earth's crust. Therefore, they say that the teachings of both the Bible and historical geology are harmonized. But the truth is, became is actually an unnatural translation, and such a reading was never considered until after theologians became convinced that the geologic ages were a proven fact. In context, and under the normal rules of translation, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 reads exactly as the King James Version presents it, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This verse is obviously intended to describe the primeval earth as it was when God first brought it into existence. Nothing in the verse even hints that the author is trying to convey the idea that the earth of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 was perfect and changed to a ruined state after some catastrophic event. In fact, the words that are translated without form and void do not convey the idea of ruin at all. Without form simply means shapeless. That is, as the world initially came into existence, it did not have the shape or form that God desired it to have as the perfect abode for man. The first three days of the creation period are primarily devoted to the correction of this state of formlessness. The embryonic earth was apparently a smooth ball covered by a universal sea, the deep, and bathed in universal darkness. This is the meaning of the word translated without form. God provided light and divided the light from the darkness, divided the waters from the waters, and then changed the shape of the smooth crust to provide low places for the seas and raised places for the continents. Then the initial formless earth became one with form. The word void simply means empty. 
On the first creation day, in its initial state, the earth had no living inhabitants. It was void of life. It was empty. On the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days of creation, God created first plant life, then animal life, and then man. This corrected the initial condition of emptiness, and the earth was no longer void. The primeval earth, as it first came into existence, was without form and void. After the sixth day of creation, these conditions were corrected, and God pronounced his creation very good. There is no room whatsoever for the speculations of the gap theory. My time is gone for today. We'll continue our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast.